You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Can some of these ideas about individual liberties and individual rights, which reach back to enlightenment ideas, can they respond quickly enough to technology, which is just changing exponentially? Hello, everyone, and welcome to Caveat, the CyberWire's privacy surveillance law and policy podcast. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is my co-host, Ben Yellen, from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Hello, Ben. Hello, Dave. On this week's show, Ben has the story of an appeals court decision protecting big tech companies from responsibility for acts of terrorism. I look at a French surveillance company whose executives may find themselves in hot water. And later in the show, my conversation with Andrew Hammond, historian and chief curator at the International Spy Museum. While this show covers legal topics and Ben is a lawyer, the views expressed do not constitute legal advice. For official legal advice on any of the topics we cover, please contact your attorney. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. All right, Ben, uh, we've got some interesting stories to share this week. Why don't you start things off for us? Yeah, and I'll note, Dave, that our stories this week kind of have a common theme, which I think is is an interesting tack for us. Right. And, uh, <laughs> I'd almost recommend it going forward. Just kind of worked out that way. It did, yeah, entirely by coincidence. So my story comes from originally a Twitter account I follow, a gentleman named Gabriel Maller, uh, and he's someone I rely on to post interesting appeals court decisions on a variety of topics. And he alerted me to a decision from the Ninth Circuit, which is on the West Coast, that holds that the community Communications Decency Act, specifically Section 230, largely protects the big tech platforms, Google, Twitter, and Facebook, from lawsuits claiming that they assist international terrorists, specifically ISIS, by allowing their platforms to be used by ISIS members uh, and thus bearing direct responsibility or indirect responsibility for these terrorist attacks. So this is actually a consolidated case. There are three separate lawsuits here coming from three separate plaintiffs, each of whom uh, had a family member that was killed in a terrorist attack. One of them uh, was killed in France, one of them in Turkey, and one of them in the San Bernardino attack here in the United States. So the Anti-Terrorism Act doesn't just impose criminal and civil liability on terrorists themselves, which it does, but it also includes a provision that was added in recent years, about five years ago, that potentially imposes criminal and civil liability on anybody who gives substantial support or sponsors international terrorism. Hmm. It's uh, It was enacted as part of the Justice Against Sponsors of International Terrorism Act of 2016. Hmm. So that includes secondary civil liability for aiding and abetting 
or conspiring to commit international acts of terrorism. What the plaintiffs are alleging here, and their cases are slightly different, but they're basically alleging the same thing, is that Google or Facebook or Twitter are secondarily responsible for these acts of terrorism because they allowed this content to be posted on their platforms and because their algorithms promote additional content coming from these terrorist organizations. So, for Mm. example... Google, when you search for ISIS or ISIS-related material, will give you a mosaic of recommended searches for additional information on that topic. Right. Uh, right. They might lead you to additional terrorist recruitment videos. I, yeah, I was going to say, I think YouTube is most famous for this, of, of potentially taking you down a, a, a path that most people probably would be better off not going down. Yeah, the proverbial rabbit hole. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, I see you're interested in this type of terrorism. Can I interest you in this other type of terrorism? (laughs) (laughs) So these three plaintiffs brought a case basically trying to hold these companies liable. And the Court of Appeals here, the decision is complicated, but it largely shields liability on the part of these tech companies because of Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. Hmm. That section says that companies cannot be held liable for the content that's posted on their platforms. Hmm. That's very basic to what the Communications Decency Act and Section 230 does, and that's something we've talked about a million times. Yeah, and that's sort of like the the phone company can't be held responsible for conversations you have over their network. Exactly. Uh, So that's a longstanding principle. Where this gets interesting is things like an algorithm. So what these plaintiffs are alleging is it's not the content that's posted on these websites. It's actually the creation of the tech companies themselves, the algorithms, Mm. the mosaics that are created by the use of search engines or searching tools, that that's actually content created by the tech companies themselves, and they should be held secondarily liable for that content. Can you just quickly unpack what secondarily liable means with the, that secondarily term? What does that mean? So it means that you can be held liable as a cause of terrorism even if you did not commit the acts of terrorism yourself. I see. So of course the terrorists themselves are liable, but there can be other entities that also assume liability for the same incident, even though, as far as I know, Google employees themselves aren't the ones actually committing the the acts of terrorism. Okay, sure. Makes sense. Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act can either be interpreted in a limited sense to only applying to the content that somebody else posts on a platform, or it can have this broad interpretation where it also shields liability for algorithms or any of the type of search engine optimization type things that these tech companies create, that these are creations used for their own self-enrichment. They're not built for the purposes of fomenting acts of terrorism and that these are things that are universally applicable. So the algorithms haven't been specifically designed to direct traffic to ISIS websites or whatever. Right. They are created. That's just what they do. Exactly. They are created. for, so to speak, like a secular purpose, which right, is right. we want to make more money and just incidentally... Uh, we, yeah, the, we want to amplify engagement. Exactly. Unfortunate side effect of that from time to time is um, terrorist recruitment. Right. <laughs> if it just happens that people are recruited and commit acts of terrorism causing mass destruction and death, then, you know, we're just trying to make a little bit of money. What's the problem with that? <laughs> right, right. We have a responsibility to our stockholders. Exactly. So the majority on this panel of the Ninth Circuit basically held that Section 230 
even when it comes to algorithms, largely shields these companies from liability. Hmm. There's a really interesting concurrence from one of the judges saying, basically, under the precedence of this circuit and from the extent that there are precedents from the Supreme Court, this decision is decided correctly. That liability does exist. We are bound as an appeals court by that precedence. But we need to reconsider our Section 230 jurisprudence going forward because companies probably should be held responsible. You know, it it probably is a wise policy for companies to bear some civil liability at least for these types of algorithms where they end up illuminating and directing traffic to these destructive websites that that can cause acts of violence or death. This is something you'll see in in a lot of decisions where a concurrence will say, we're bound by precedent, but this is what I would like to see happen in the future. So it's both a call, I think, to members of Congress who could clarify the Communications Decency Act to not have this broad liability shield when we're talking about algorithms. But it's also potentially a call to either the the full Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit, other federal courts of appeals, and the U.S. Supreme Court saying, I want to introduce this uh, alternative theory of Section 230 where it's the the shield is limited to somebody else posting content on that platform. The shield should not apply as broadly when we are talking about an algorithm that's created by the companies themselves that is directing this traffic. And I'm suspecting that perhaps this concurrence in the long run might lead to some sort of policy change, whether that happens through the courts or whether that happens through Congress. But it's a it's a fascinating decision. Hmm. Goes through the history of liability under this anti-terrorism statute for the amendments under this 2016 Justice Against Sponsors of International Terrorism Act. What happens next now that this decision has been released? Does it go somewhere else from here? Is it settled? What's the machinations that occur next? So imagine you are taking a six-hour road trip uh, we are at the part of the road trip where you have closed your garage door and driven up the street. Ah, so and that's my way of saying we are very early in the process because okay. this appeals court decision was about motions to dismiss by the companies themselves, ah. and they actually denied some of the motions on various issues that uh, we did not discuss. Okay, so some of these motions to dismiss are now going to go back to the district court level. These are consolidated cases, so the outcomes at the district court level could be disparate. It could come back up to the Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit. They would rely on this precedent from the decision here, but it could take a while for the case to come back up to the Ninth Circuit. Once any case makes it back to the Ninth Circuit, you could have another decision. That decision could be reviewed on banc by the entire Ninth Circuit panel. So you know how frustrating it is to wait <laughs> so long for any resolution to these issues. Right. The, the, the slow pace is a both a feature and a bug, right? Yes, it sure is. It is. I think saying a, it, it moves at a snail's pace is a little too generous. <laughs> right, and, and, and you're, uh, you're, you're unfairly uh, besmirching snails. Yeah. <laughs> snails are much faster than our judicial system right. in, in some circumstances. Right. I do think the reasoning here is going to be applicable going forward, obviously, in the Ninth Circuit. Um, but now this, this can be a, a defining case in other circuits where they really took a look at this issue in a bunch of different contexts because we're talking about a bunch of different instances of terrorism. So I think this will have some precedential value. But as of getting some sort of final resolution, either on these three particular cases or a final resolution on the issue as a whole, yeah, we're going to have to sit and wait. 
Yeah, interesting, I guess, signaling here, right, of interesting messaging coming out of this decision. It's fascinating messaging. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's it's a decision that's going to be cited going forward because I think it, it does help sort of define the scope, as this court sees it, of Section 230 in anti-terrorism cases. Hmm. All right. Well, we'll have a link to the tweet that kicked off your investigation there. It actually hasn't been, as you and I record this, there hasn't been a whole lot of coverage of this decision yet. So uh, you've really been digging into the case itself. Yeah. Yeah. I've had to do uh, some reading. It's hard to believe. <laughs> it's, wow. an, it's an 167. Uh, <laughs> it's like you're back in law school. <laughs> I know. 167 page case. Uh, so it's relatively dense. But, you know, for those of you who enjoy legalese, it's a really fascinating decision to read. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll have a link uh, to that where you can uh, track it down there. Uh, my story this week comes from the MIT Technology Review. This is an article written by Patrick Howell O'Neill. And uh, it's titled, French Spyware Bosses Indicted for Their Role in the Torture of Dissidents. And this is kind of fascinating, and as you mentioned at the outset of our show, kind of along the same lines of what you were talking about here. Um, This is about a uh, company in France. Originally, the company was named Amasis. Um, they later changed their name to Nexa Technology. Always get to rebrand after you've sold some of your uh, spyware to. <laughs> it happens all the time. State sponsors of terrorism. Yeah, <laughs> it happens all the time. So what's happened here is that the Paris Judicial Court has indicted some of the leaders of this company, claiming that they sold their technology to Libya and Egypt over the past decade or so, and that led to. Uh, crushing of opposition, torture of dissidents, and other human rights abuses. This, I think, is fascinating. You know, I I, uh, I do a weekly uh, segment over on the Grumpy Old Geeks podcast, and we have there's sort of a dark running gag over there that no one ever gets punished for anything in tech. You know, like doesn't matter what you you can destroy democracy, and uh, no one goes to jail, right? No one goes to jail. Right. Um, And in this case, there may be some consequences for some folks here from the uh, powers that be over in France. What's your take on this, Ben? That's a really interesting story. I'll first say that I'm limited by the fact that I am uh, unfortunately not an expert in the human rights statues at issue here coming from uh, the French government. Right. Um, So I I am speaking rather generally and not from an area of specific expertise here. Mm -hmm. Uh, But these are really serious allegations. So one of the allegations stems from the sale of the spyware to Gaddafi, Muammar Gaddafi, back in 2011, mm-hmm. uh, which was during the really one of the, the early days of the Arab Spring. Um, and the allegation is that the use of the software led directly to spying on dissidents uh, and eventually led to their torture. And they uh, were able to testify, uh, the people who, who were tortured were able to testify in a case in 2014 that, that helped connect the dots from the spyware to the torture itself. And the same with uh, a separate sale of the spy to Egypt under Sisi in 2014. I think it's really interesting, just like our previous story, that there's perhaps some limitation instigated by the judicial system, in this case in France, on the principle that you can do whatever you want to make a buck, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. In the case we just discussed, it's can we maximize our, our algorithm Can we design an algorithm in a way that makes us, the executives of these tech companies, as rich as possible, no matter what the consequences are for society at large? Right. And here it's, can we, under relevant French law, 
sell this spyware to these these countries and these leaders who are pretty clearly cruel to political dissidents without facing any consequences. And I think what this indictment signals is there is a limit to how much you can do as a tech company or as a tech platform to make a buck if your actions are going to lead to some type of societal harm. So I I, I mean, I think that's a, a really interesting lesson, whether it continues in this case uh, I think is is under question because it's just an indictment. It's in the preliminary stages right. of consideration right. um, in these French courts. One of the things they point out in this article is that at the time these deals were made, there were no specific prohibitions in the law in France against these sorts of sales. And the French government did not approve or disapprove of the sale and in doing nothing that allowed the sale to move forward. What I guess what I'm thinking of is that, you know, like here in the United States, we have rules against doing business with certain nations and there are things that you cannot export or you must, you must get permission before you share certain technologies. Famously back in the nineties, there were certain types of encryption that were considered to be munitions and you could not export them. I remember there was a story of a gentleman who uh, famously tattooed uh, one of the uh, encryption algorithms on his arm and then traveled internationally to try to make a point that the, these restrictions were silly and, and not really and the uh, algorithm, enforceable. The tattoo fit on his arm? I'm a little surprised. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Well, must either, have been a talented tattoo artist. Yeah, small text or large arms. Yeah. I don't know. But either way, uh, you know, it was just an interesting statement from somebody – Uh, who kind of knew better. Let's say you're the head of a tech company here in the U.S. and you are a company who handles surveillance technology. What's your take on this story? My take is I should be careful who I sell it to. Mm. Uh, And I should definitely involve legal counsel uh, because, yes, in the United States, um, based on various sanctions that we have and, (laughs) frankly, on the statute that we just mentioned in our previous story, you can be held liable to materially supporting either terrorist organizations or, in this case, state sponsors of terrorism. So there are consequences and there are limits. In terms of what happens in this case, because it's an indictment, the judges have to decide whether the case can proceed to to criminal court Mm. or whether it would be dismissed based on a lack of evidence. And what one of the experts here said is these cases are notoriously difficult to prosecute for a number of reasons. Sometimes the evidence itself is a little unclear. Sometimes, uh, like as in France, the sufficient regulations or requirements are confusing enough that a court might decide that there isn't enough uh, meat in the bones of these statutes to to prosecute a case. Hmm. And corporations can exert political pressure on either judges or politicians to shield themselves from liability in these cases. I mean, they they still carry a lot of political influence. Right. So I think anybody who's overly optimistic about holding these companies accountable, I think you need to kind of uh, curb your enthusiasm, so to speak, <laughs> uh, right. and wait to see whether this, this case actually proceeds. But I do think, you know, if you work for a tech company in the United States and you see a case like this, I think this is a warning sign that you need to have some level of care in sales and procurement uh, in order to make sure that you're not doing business with either terrorist organizations or state sponsors of terrorism that are enemies of uh, your own country. Yeah. 
All right. Well, we will have a link to that story uh, from the MIT Technology Review in our show notes. Of course, we would love to hear from you. If you have a question for us or a story you think we should cover, you can send us an email. It's caveat at thecyberwire.com. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and zero trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their sassy journey, visit netskope.com. And I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Andrew Hammond. He is the historian and chief curator at the International Spy Museum. Uh, here's my conversation with Andrew Hammond. Today we are talking about this notion of freedom versus security online and, and in the real world. You know, you wrote this interesting piece uh, with your co-author Richard Aldrich about Obama, the NSA, and U.S. foreign policy can we just start there with with a little bit of level setting about some of the backstory of how we have managed that tension between security and freedom? I think it's a big question that goes to the heart of debates about modern democracy and modern uh, liberalism, the security of the state, the security of the enterprise, uh, the umbrella under which people within that state live, and then also their own individual rights, their own individual freedoms, their own sphere where they can live their lives out without anyone, you know, looking over their shoulder or telling them what to do. So if we think about the American Revolution, that was in some ways a response to what was perceived as overweening government, government leaning too heavily on the citizens or reaching too much into their lives. So if you think about the technological changes that have taken place since then, you know, I think one of the main tensions is can some of these ideas about individual liberties and individual rights, which reach back to enlightenment ideas, can they respond quickly enough to technology, which is just changing exponentially? So if you think about that journey over time, we could think about during the Civil War, we can think about Abraham Lincoln suspending habeas corpus. We can think about World War II or the period just afterwards, the, the House on American Affairs Committee, McCarthyism. There's always this tension within American history, which is one of the things I'm most interested about, between individual freedom and between the freedom of groups and government. If there is no government, if there's no American state, then... In many ways, that's a guarantor of freedom. But how much power should that state have? Quite often, people that man the government think that they need more power. And quite often, people that are not in the government think that the government should have less power. Um, so how does all of that cash out? How does all of that play out in the end? Well, in, in your writing, you've brought up a, a couple of events that really brought this to the fore. You know, as we were, I guess, hot and heavy into the digital age and 
you know, some of these um, information gathering organizations like the NSA, the CIA, where they were capable of gathering massive amounts of information in a way that perhaps hadn't been available to them before. And we, we had this combination of things. We had, of course, the Snowden revelations. But then we also had the revelations that the United States was taking particular interest in, for example, Angela Merkel's telephone. So we had this notion that, you know, friends don't spy on friends, as they said. I mean, these two revelations led to a lot of conversation in this area. Can, can you kind of unpack the, the conversations that took place when these came to the fore? Yeah, I think some of the conversations that took place with the, say, say with the Snowden leak, I mean, I think one of the main things there, just looking at it, is that if you think about Edward Snowden, think about the types of positions that he had. You know, he wasn't like a super high level person, but he sat astride a place where a lot of information flowed through. So I think that that's quite interesting. Or if you think about Bradley Manning, you know, we're not talking Major General Bradley Manning or Colonel Bradley Manning. We're talking about someone pretty far down the the military hierarchy. So I think that just given the the volume of information that people that are trying to, you know, intelligence agencies, militaries that are trying to make sense of all of this information, there's huge flows of it coming in. And it's... I guess it's it's easier to hack into in many ways because the amount of people that are exposed to it can be much greater and the volume of information that's passing through can be much greater. I think some of the other bits, debates about Snowden was that, I mean, sure, states have spied on their citizens uh, historically, but, but now, um, I mean, just think about an iPhone. You're carrying around one of the greatest intelligence gathering devices ever devised in, in human history. Just think about the apps that you have if you've got an iPhone, your banking, your location, the food you're buying. You go to Whole Foods and you scan because you're a Prime member. People can probably deduce from what you're buying at Whole Foods. They can probably make have insights into your education level, you know, where you may live, your age, um, a whole variety of different things. So so the, the the potential of the information and the volume of information is just is huge. I don't think that Western societies have confronted some of the implications of the the information age for the way that they do business, which is traditionally pretty slow, pretty labyrinth and uh, and very bureaucratic. We're in a very different kind of information space, and I don't think that government 2.0 has necessarily arrived as of yet. And on the spying with friends, I mean, I think that's a really interesting one because, you know, this is something historically that has always happened. Britain spied on America in the run-up to World War One. The Americans spied on the Japanese during peace negotiations in the 1920s. Uh, the Germans spied on their Italian allies during World War Two. So this goes on all the time. You can almost say that this is the default position I think that very rarely you have this unique constellation of events that create a place where this doesn't happen. So one of the places that it's said not to happen is with the SIGINT relationship with Britain and America um, and within the Five Eyes community. So they're said not to snoop on each other, but 
historically they sometimes have. So we've got a very yeah. unique kind of setup of affairs, but I don't want to make it sound like, oh, well, you know, I've researched this and I'm a historian. And I mean, I, of, of course, you know, I'm just pouring cold water on every, every concern that everyone has because, you know, I, I just know more. It's, it's not about that. It's just, if you just look at it, look at the evidence, states historically have spied on each other apart from very rare occasions. Think about the amount of your listeners that have been in a relationship or a marriage and the marriage, one of the main ways they break down apart from communication is through trust. And trust is a very difficult thing to maintain over a long period of time. So just like it is for couples, how many people have not just looked over the shoulder of what a partner's doing online? How many people have not wondered what their text messages are doing? So just as between couples that share a house, share a mortgage, have the same kids, just like trust can be difficult for them. It can also be very difficult for allies like Germany and America. That's not to say that I'm not justifying it. I'm not, I'm not excusing it. I'm just explaining it like this does happen and can happen and will happen. It strikes me as being kind of like, you know, Casablanca, where I'm shocked, shocked to find out that there's espionage going on here, right? I mean... (laughs) I think you should just assume that espionage is going on. (laughs) Right. With the Biden administration, how do we see their approach being? I mean, I think it's it's fair to say things were fairly chaotic throughout the Trump administration. And so the, the Biden administration has the opportunity to sort of set their own level here. Are, are there any signals coming out of that administration so far? I think the first thing to say would be just, you know, because I'm appearing on behalf of the Spy Museum, you know, we try to steer clear of politics. So I don't, I don't want to get too much into Trump and Biden and Sure, and, and, sure. and so forth. I mean, I think there's a number of different ways of looking at the Biden administration. There's looking at Biden's backstory. So he was Obama's vice president for eight years. And the article that you mentioned at the beginning of our chat was about Obama and Snowden and the NSA. So at the moment, because we're not that far into the administration, it's a little bit like reading the tea leaves, you know, so we can mm-hmm. look at he was vice president. Well, but he could be his own man uh, he could be very different as president. We could look at some of the things that Biden, some of his positions in the past, some of the things that he's espoused. We can look at the types of people that he's put into positions of authority and the various intelligence agencies. Um, we can also look at the legacies that he's inherited at those various agencies, their processes and so forth. I think at the minute there's there's a few shoots coming through the earth. There's a few seeds that that I see growing, but I wouldn't want to say too much more until I see more of the of the sh- of the leaves coming through. Yeah, that's fair enough. I mean, is this a, a fundamental tension upon which our democracy is built? Is it you know not so much a bug as a feature of the system to have this notion of freedom and security in tension? Is that necessarily a bad thing? I I don't think it is a bad thing because. I mean, let's take the term freedom. Like in American history, it has meant different things to different people at different points in time, or even even just more generally. So in the Civil War, James McPherson's great book, Battle Cry of Freedom, in that book, basically the Confederates and the Union Army's soldiers were fighting each other, killing each other, but they both said they were doing so 
on behalf of the same term. So we've clearly got an example where different ideas of freedom are at play. Um, and this has been a constant feature of American history. Like, let me give you this really interesting <laughs> experiment that I done uh, when I was doing some of my research. There's an archive at Brown University of extremist propaganda and literature. And I went there and I looked through some of the like super right-wing archives, um, some of the material. And then I went and looked at the opposite extreme. I looked at a lot of the stuff on the like far left. What one term do you think both of those groups used continually in their <laughs> newspapers, in their magazines? Uh, which one term? Um, freedom. I'm uh, right. I said, I'm going to go out on a limb here and guess it was freedom. <laughs> so, uh, almost by definition, you know, freedom is just part of the furniture, it's part of the vocabulary of the American experience, but it can mm. get cashed out in very different ways. So, so it is always something that's a feature of the system. It's not a final destination. It's more a journey that America is on about what the nature of freedom is. And, and it can definitely mean different things to different people, different points in time. And, and security is one of the main complicating factors there, right? Because some people think that the nation is more secure when the state has more power. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not taking a position in the debate, but some people think that government should just the least possible amount of things. Yeah, so I think that those two debates sometimes take, you know, are, are, are a little bit divorced from the realities of the international system. Um, I think that some, so for example, some kind of like super minimalistic state that doesn't have a military, that doesn't have intelligence agencies, um, it's not very practical for the type of world that we're living in at the moment. But on the other hand, we don't want, you know, if anybody's ever read any of the dystopian novels, 1984, all of them, you know, Fahrenheit 571, you know, we certainly don't want that kind of state power either. Ben, what do you think? Have you been to the Spy Museum, Dave? I have, yes. In fact, uh, for those who aren't familiar, they, they have a – it's a museum in Washington, D.C., and uh, they recently relocated. Uh, I'd say, what, about a year before the pandemic shut us down, they greatly expanded. And uh, it, it is – if you're coming to D.C., I'd put the Spy Museum on your, your must-visit lists of, uh, of museums, especially if you have kids. It's, uh, it's really a lot of fun. It is. It's a very interactive museum. I went before they moved to their uh, new location, but mm, mm-hmm. that's the first thing I would say. Highly recommend the museum. Yeah. Uh, really interesting conversation. I think one thing that uh, stood out to me is how much more we understand about surveillance in the last 10 years, starting with the Snowden revelations and then, um, you know, with the additional revelations that we weren't just spying on our own citizens, but we were using surveillance techniques on our allies, you know, people like uh, German Chancellor Angela Merkel. Right. And I think that just kind of increased the awareness of the power of surveillance, how it's it's so pervasive and we don't know what we don't know. The fact that all of this information was leaked leads us to believe that there's a lot of information out there on surveillance practices that hasn't been leaked that perhaps is is more intrusive than anything we've heard about thus far. Uh, hmm. But I thought it was a really interesting conversation. Yeah. Well, our thanks to Andrew Hammond uh, from the International Spy Museum for joining us. 
That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. The Caveat Podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Ben Yellen. Thanks for listening.